Well, let's get started. I have got a lot of notes because uh, Jerry and I talked a little bit about some things. But let, let me open in prayer and then we'll get started. Father, we just do thank you for this time. Thanks for um, this opportunity to uh, dive into your word. And uh, Father, teach us and uh, guide us and um, just use use me this morning as your vessel to communicate your words, Father, because we know uh, Scripture is all inspired by you and we just uh, pray for your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in part four um, um, of MacArthur's book, uh, Jerry's been leading, leading us through um, the call to repentance, the call to um, the nature of true faith, and last week the promise of justification. But Jerry didn't spend a lot of time on justification. He spent more of his time talking about Martin Lloyd-Jones and faith. And uh, So today we are going to move into the topic of salvation, but Jerry wanted me to go back and kind of make sure we go through, through justification. Uh, so I want to attempt to answer four questions today. Uh, first, what are we saved from? Secondly, how does God save us? Third, um, how can God who loves the world permit anyone to perish? Tough question there. And lastly, to answer this question, um, it's, is it unfair to say that Jesus is the only way? Are we being narrow-minded when we say that Jesus is the only way to salvation? Um, now, in Jerry's list, the one word we're talking about a little bit later today is not on there, salvation. Salvation is not on there because all these point to salvation. Um, repent and believe in Jesus. That's simply all it takes. But is there anything that happens before a person can repent? Is there anything that must happen before one can repent? Is there any... Is there something that happens after one believes? And this whole process, this process that's laid out by Paul and is laid out in all of Scripture, is known to us as the order salutis, which is the order of salvation. So all this is really about salvation. Salvation has already happened, but yet in another sense it's still to come because we've not yet experienced all of its benefits. We haven't yet been glorified. And until that time when Jesus comes, we're only midway through this order of salvation. So before moving into chapter 20, um, I want to dive into a little bit about um, this concept of justification. Um, In order to fully understand salvation, says Robert Godfrey, We need to understand the doctrine of justification, which is under attack in our time in this culture. And we need to be renewed in our understanding of that doctrine and our commitment to it. So to understand the doctrine of justification, we have to talk about a three-letter word. Sin. Sin. we got to talk about sin. We cannot avoid talking about sin. And we look through culture today and... That's what's missing. It's people's sinful nature. So we have to talk about sin uh, so that we can understand what kind of a Savior that we truly, truly have. So sin is an affront to God. It's against God and the person who is against God cannot be right with God. 
Let me say that again. Sin is always an affront to God. It's against God. Sin is against God. And the person, me and you, who are against God cannot be right with God. If we're against God, then God is against us. As John Murray says in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, God cannot be indifferent to our complacency towards that which is the contradiction of Himself. His very perfection requires the recoil of righteous indignation, and that is God's wrath. So what are we saved from? God's wrath. wrath. We're saved from God's wrath. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, we are rescued from the wrath that is to come. And the doctrine of justification teaches how we can become right with Him. Now the answer, of course, is that we cannot be right with God. We cannot be right with Him because everything about us is all wrong with Him. And we're all wrong with Him because we've all sinned and fall short of His glory. And I know for a fact, and Elizabeth and I were talking about this this morning, I know for a fact I do not take sin and the gravity of sin serious enough. The reality of my sin. I mean, I do. We talk about it. But I don't really understand its gravity and what it does to God. Because God's a holy God and I'm not holy. And and that's where I think we want to go in today's lesson is to understand truly the uh, the gravity of, of our sin. Westminster uh, Larger Catechism number 70 reads, Justification is an act of God's free grace to sinners in which He pardons all their sins, accepts and accounts their persons righteous in His sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. Now that language, you've probably heard the term forensic. It's forensic. It's, it's, a legal, it's legal standing. We stand essentially in God's courtroom accused of being guilty of sin. And our guilt is twofold. First, we're guilty because we have a corrupt nature. Of course, we got that corrupt nature because of Adam's sin and we inherited that corrupt nature. So that's the first um, part that our nature is corrupt. Secondly, we're guilty because of the sins each of us individually have committed here in our lifetime. And Scripture says the penalty for guilt is death. But Jesus took that death penalty in our place and God pronounces us not guilty. Notice He doesn't call us innocent. We're never called innocent because we're not. We're not innocent. But He declares us legally righteous. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of the work of Christ alone. And one thing I remember going through seminary with John was trying to help um, Nick and I understand um, justification uh, versus sanctification. Justification is where God declares us righteous. Sanctification is the process that He's making us righteous. And that was a good distinction that... uh, that, that, that I've been able to, to, to hold on to. Um, so you're probably familiar with the accounting term impute. It means to credit something to your account. So in declaring us righteous, God has done two things for us. First, He has imputed, He's credited to our account the righteousness of Christ, but yet He has imputed our sins to the person of Christ. 
We get the righteousness of Christ, but Christ gets our sin. And He did that willingly. He did that willingly. And He accepts willingly our death for the penalty which was delivered to Him by the hands of, of, the, um, of, uh, of the Romans and the Jews in our place, in our stead. And John explains this a little bit further in John 3, 14 and 15. And we'll get to John 3.16 in a minute. Uh, but in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now Jesus is referencing a story in, in Numbers. Uh, the serpent in the wilderness, which Moses lifted up on a pole. Numbers 21.4 um, through about verse 9. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water. We see this over and over and over again ad nauseum in the, in the exile story. Uh, why have you brought us out to Egypt to die? There's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent the fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people in Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So Jesus is referring to the deadly episode in Israel's history. During the Exodus, the people had complained against God, so the Lord sent the fiery serpents, and many people, as we just read, were bitten and died. Augustine comments on this story, just as they who looked on that serpent did not perish, from the serpent's bites, so they who look in the faith on Christ Jesus' death are healed from the bites of sin. So those snakes point to the entry of sin into the world when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God's command. God had warned them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But those who believe in the Son will not perish, and they will not suffer the wrath of God. So there we have it. Answer to the first question, what are we saved from? It's the wrath of God. So the second question, how does God save us? Um, if you look at the last few verses of Exodus, and Elizabeth and I have been reading through the Bible starting this year, so we just completed Exodus not terribly long ago, but if you notice in the last paragraph of the book of Exodus. The tabernacle had been built, and God had come to dwell among His people. But then in verse 34, at the very end, then the cloud covered, the cloud of the Spirit covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses cannot enter into the presence of God because of the sins of the people. It wasn't too many chapters before that. We saw the, um, 
the incident with Aaron and, and, uh, and the golden calf. So there we have Moses, the mediator, cannot enter into the presence of God. But look at Numbers verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. So at the end of Exodus, Moses cannot enter into the Holy of Holies, but in Numbers 1, he can. What happened? What happens between Exodus and Numbers? Leviticus. Specifically chapter 16. This is the atonement. This is God's instructions to Moses on how God will repair a broken relationship that all of us have with Him and how God will restore that relationship. Starting in verse 7, Aaron must take two male goats and present them to the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. He is to cast sacred lots to determine which goat will be reserved as an offering to the Lord and which one will carry the sins of the people into the wilderness. Aaron will then present as a sin offering the goat chosen by Lot for for the Lord. The other goat, the scapegoat, will be kept alive standing before the Lord. It will be sent away into the wilderness and the people will be purified. So here we see Aaron's to kill one of the goats, carry the blood into the presence of the Holy of Holies and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat which covers our sin from the gaze of God. Now the blood of the creature is its life. That's why the Jews are not allowed in the dietary laws to drink the blood of an animal because that blood represents represents life. And so this goat's life is offered as a substitute for the person seeking forgiveness. And it's receiving God's punishment, the animal is, so that the people of Israel do not have to. This is propitiation. That's the term propitiation, which simply means the wrath of God has been appeased. And in the Old Testament, we see that the, the unblemished animals spread their blood and the priest sprinkled it on the altar covering the people's sin, our sin in the case of the New Testament, from, from God. And then, not only does he sprinkle the blood, he transfers the sins to the scapegoat. The priest would then lay the hands on the scapegoat, signifying the transfer of the sins, and then send it outside the camp and away from the presence of God. And how far does God send those sins away from us as far as the east is from the west and that's the signification of transferring your sins to that scapegoat and the sins are gone so our sins have been atoned for by the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross so as a substitute Jesus became sin and our sin was transferred to him on the cross he becomes the scapegoat. He takes away our sins. Now, when John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching him, behold the Lamb of God, what does he say? Who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist is referring right back to what happened in the atonement. And this is the connectivity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we see so many, so many in the pulpits around churches today who don't talk about the connection between between the two. So as Jesus hung on the cross, um, Matthew records in his Gospel, verse 27, 
that, or chapter 27, that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up the Spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if you, if you go back and look at the, um, at the specifications for that curtain, it's a big curtain, and it is thick. I mean, very, very thick. So, the earthquake happens when Jesus gives up His Spirit and the curtain is torn. Now, the curtain of the temple separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the, the, rest of the courtyard. Only the high priest could go in there once a year. And there is nothing like the Holy of Holies. It's the most holy place in the Jewish religion and contained... Remember what it contains? Four things. The Ark of the Covenant. The manna. The, the uh, jar of manna. The jar of manna and Aaron's rod. Uh, Aaron's rod. So the lid of the Ark was called the mercy seat. The high priest on Yom Kippur, which is called today, Day of Atonement, would cleanse himself enter into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and in that action, uh, the, uh, our sins are covered, protecting the people from judgment. And then when Jesus cried out, He gave up His Spirit, the veil in the temple was torn, and Jesus, the perfect Lamb, our substitute, enter in, enters into the Holy of Holies, which was reserved only for the high priest. And But Jesus is our ultimate high priest. No one can enter that place except the high priest and Jesus at His death. The curtain is torn and He goes and sprinkles His blood on that, on that altar. Um, Hebrews tells us, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away the sins. The priest could never sit down and R.C. Sproul notes that when Jesus entered into that, there, there's no chair in there. But Jesus said on the cross, what? It's finished. It's finished. So Jesus now sits down at the hand of the God the Father in heaven and our sins have been forgiven. It's done. No more repetition of sacrificing um, animals because Jesus offered Himself. So Christ is both the Lamb and the, uh, and the scapegoat. Not only did He bear the wrath of God, but He took on our sins, making us sinless in the eyes of God. And that's hard to fathom. That my sins are cast upon Him. And through faith, those sins will not, uh, will not allow me to suffer God's wrath will not allow you to suffer God's wrath because of what He did on the cross. Um, in seminary, we studied Isaiah 53 uh, at great length. Um, in Isaiah 53, we can glean these truths. Jesus suffered undeservedly for our sin. Not His sin, but ours. He's the righteous one, not me. Jesus suffered at the hand of God. Jesus cried out on the cross, Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was the object of God's wrath. He stood in our place, took on the full wrath of God. All this is in Isaiah 53. Uh, God treated Jesus as he, as he lived my life. He took my sin upon Myself in exchange, gave Me His righteousness. And then He died, but before dying, He said these words, It is finished. 
John spoke last week um, in Mark about Jesus being delivered into the hands of hands of the um, of the Romans, and the context was the covenant, and God promised the Son a kingdom of people in the covenant of redemption before time even began. And in that promise, in that covenant, Jesus promised to suffer and die for those to whom the Father would give Him. And the Holy Spirit promised to keep all those whom Jesus suffered for. And then Jesus speaks these words, it's finished. His work is complete. He has fulfilled His promise. And then the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is with us to sanctify us, to keep us from falling away eternally for those who have placed their faith in Him. So that's how God saves us. He dies for us. He goes through the uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Um, So before moving to the two final questions, um, let's look at the term salvation in Scripture. It's used many, 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 many times in a lot of different senses. Um, I could spend a lot of time going over the many senses. One sense is that uh, a, uh, a woman is saved by becoming pregnant. <laughs> okay, <laughs> But the terms senses and tenses, R.C. Sproul likes to say, the word saved is used in many senses and many tenses. And the tenses we're going to talk about, obviously, is as it relates to our salvation from, from God's wrath. Um, it says that we have been saved from the foundation of the world. Uh, Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4 Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be made holy and blameless. Another um, sense of salvation. The imperfect tense that, that was in the past tense, by the way. That was a past tense uh, word. Uh, sotho is the Greek word used for salvation in this sense, but it comes in different tenses. That was the past tense. We've been saved from eternity past for those who've been chosen. The imperfect tense says that we were being saved. He's been working on our salvation throughout history. Our salvation was being prepared for us through the call of Abraham, through the exile in Exodus, through the reign of David, through the exile in Babylon, and we were being saved by the power of the Holy Spirit as God allowed them to suffer and He cre- and He allowed for that remnant to come out of the other side every time. So we were being saved in the imperfect tense. In the present tense, we are saved. 1 John 5.13 tells us, um, that Jesus um, wrote, uh, John wrote these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. So we do have an assurance of salvation. We've got that assurance. When we look at our lives and we look at the lives of others, there's fruit. There's that, there's that fruit of the Spirit. There's all these things that we see in, in our own lives and in the lives of others to kind of get a sense for where people are in their salvation. So we are saved and we have that assurance. Um, In the present continuous tense, we are being saved. In one sense, it's not a once for all salvation. 
as we see here, this is the process. That process of sanctification, that process of salvation, is described uh, as an ongoing as an ongoing process. So these things that John includes in describing this process of salvation include us exhibiting more and more of the fruit of the Spirit, um, loving others more than we love ourselves. These things include you being obedient to God's Word. And how do we are obedient to God's Word? It means we got to get into it. we got to get into it to know what it, what it says. These things include you growing in holiness and sinning less during the coming years. We're all going to sin. But hopefully, we're sinning less because we're becoming more and more obedient to God's Word. Um, these things it, uh, include you adhering to the apostolic teachings of Scripture. When John keeps you know, hammering home the authority of the apostles in the writings. These words that we read between the pages of Scripture, those are God's Word. And as we see ourselves adhering more and more to God's Word, we understand our salvation uh, process more. These things include you trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Um, if you're like me, man, I dive into works all the time. Because, you know, growing up son of two coaches, everything was performance. I mean, our, my whole football career was, it was performance driven. You didn't play unless you performed. And that's hard to break away from. It's hard to break away from. But yet, God gives us that strength through the Holy Spirit so that we can suppress the performance that we can rely more and more and more upon Him for salvation. Um, and these things include you confessing your sins and repenting. And finally, the Bible speaks the future tense of salvation when we will be fully glorified in heaven. So we were saved, we were being saved, we are saved, we are being saved, we shall be saved. Every tense you can imagine in the English language applies to the term salvation all throughout Scripture. Are you, were you going to say something? Look like you were about ready to say something. That's okay. Okay, okay. Third question. So if God so loved the world, how can a God who loves the world permit anyone to perish? Late last year, I had the opportunity to deliver the eulogy at my uncle's funeral. Many in our family are believers, but there are many who are not. Most everyone knew John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And non-believers hang their hat on that verse. That's the universalist go-to Scripture. God so loved the world. And they stop there. Listen to 17 and 18. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So to reject the Gospel is to embrace not the good news of the Gospel, but the bad news of these world religions and these world theologies that offer no hope whatsoever. In seminary, we talked about four groups of people as it relates to salvation. The first group of people are not saved and 
they are aware that they're not saved. They, they're unregenerate and they know it and they've got no interest whatsoever in becoming Christians. The people in the second group are in a state of grace, but they're not sure that they're saved. A third group would be a group of people who are in a state of grace and are assured of their salvation. And then this fourth one. This complicates things a lot. The fourth group. Those who are not saved, but think they are. Now the main way that people develop a false sense of assurance is by having a false understanding of the way of salvation. Many people hold to justification by death. Universalist. That's you die, God loves the world, we go to heaven. So you're justified upon your death. The reasoning goes like this All people are saved by a loving and merciful God. Since I'm a person, it follows that I am saved and cannot lose my salvation. Probably the most prevalent doctrine of justification in modern culture is the doctrine of the justification by works. Most Americans, including those who call themselves evangelicals, believe that people will get into heaven if they simply live a good life. Why did Jesus have to die then? Why did Jesus have to die? To save us from His wrath. Yeah, but according to that, that doesn't make any difference. Well, no, yeah, yeah. If, if you if you limit it to that, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, if you limit it to that, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, so many Christians may think. Um, let's see. Okay, uh, got me off track. I'm going to pick on you instead of Jerry. I think I, I think I skipped over my point to really knock Jerry for what he said about me a couple weeks ago. Um, so people think um, I'm pretty good. I do the best I can. I haven't done anything terribly wrong. Um, I'm not like uh, Alec Murdoch. Okay. Um, God will be satisfied. Many Christians may think, I look forward to the day when I will be welcomed into heaven. After all, I've gone to church for 40 years. I've been a Sunday school teacher. I've given money to the church, other good causes, and I've never murdered anyone or committed adultery. The confidence of such people is based upon their own goodness, which is not the biblical understanding of true They're salvation. Collectors That's right. That's right. Can, can you imagine... Matthew at the tax collecting stand and Jesus says, come follow me and he just walks. I mean, that's just... Uh... But MacArthur, beginning to move into the book now, MacArthur shows us that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns us about this. Near the end of the sermon, um, Jesus says, on the day of judgment, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name. And Jesus is saying to the people who are going to come to Him on the last day, they're not only confessing Him as Lord, but they're also claiming an intimate relationship with Him. He's talking about people who will approach the judgment seat with a strong sense of their salvation because of their works. That's that complicated group four. They think they're saved, but they get to heaven and realize your name's not in the book of life because Jesus never knew us. Not that people don't know about Jesus. People know about Jesus. We hear His name invoked in 
every sense of the word. But does Jesus know us? Does Jesus know us? That's the, the key there. But Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And He says lawlessness because what are we called to do? Obey His Word. If we don't obey the law, then we're lawless. If we're not obeying Scripture, that term fits every one of us. We are lawless. We cannot keep the law. We just can't. Others believe that they're saved automatically through the sacraments of the church. Uh, Jerry could talk ad nauseum about this in, in his Catholic upbringing. But in this view, the Roman Catholic view and others, uh, the gifts of God are communicated by the workings of the works through the sacral ministries, sacramental ministries of the church. Um, this mentality is not just restricted, I think, to Roman Catholics. It's shared by many Protestants who think that if they're church members, if your name's on a church roll somewhere, your ticket is punched and you're on your way to heaven. So we tend to kind of look at our Catholic friends, uh, but yet this is a Protestant view just as much, that just church membership is not the sacraments, but church membership gets us into heaven, and that is not the way it happens. Then there's those who say doctrine does not matter. All you need to know is Jesus. So the question then is, who is Jesus? And now we're into doctrine. <laughs> we're into, into theology. So theology and doctrine is important. We've got to have the right doctrine, which leads to the right practice. Okay, That's those ortho words that uh, John and Christian like to throw out. There's three of them, and I can't remember the third one. So, uh, But on the other hand, even if our doctrine is right, that that is not enough to give us real assurance of salvation. The devil can earn a perfect score on a systematic theology quiz. He can make a 100. But the devil knows the truth, but he hates the truth. He hates the truth. So, Chris, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. The, we were talking about this exact thing on Friday night, Jonathan and the girls' night and stuff. And I think Jonathan said, you know, there's a huge difference between head knowledge talking about theology versus love knowledge. And I was like, yeah, I tend to lead towards the head knowledge and forget <laughs> the love knowledge thing. And the girls said, well, Satan knows the Bible and the theology better than you do, Mom. And I think, I think that we tend to forget that, or at least I do. You know, I tend to forget that because I love to know more, and I want to know more, and I want to know more. And I lean towards, well, this is what I know, and this is what you don't know. And we forget the love knowledge mm -hmm. and continue on with the head knowledge. And I think that's very dangerous, too. Not, nothing like having your child put in your place, right? No, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> we had a, oh gosh! We actually had a, a guide in Israel. She could recite everything from the Bible. She knew it backwards and forwards. Somebody said, but our pastor was with her, with us one day, and she said, "Look, this is my job. Mm -hmm. I don't believe a word of it." Mm -hmm. uh, mm. But what's scary is that people in that tour group. Because of her knowledge, right. they look up to her, and it just—that's right. you're attracted to people who know this stuff, exactly. and you tend to believe them. Yeah. And it doesn't take 
too far for people to go off on a on a, and, and and John talks about in the book. John MacArthur talks about in the book the the one way. The you got yeah. you know it's there's a fork in the road and that one goes to eternal life and this one doesn't. And I love that turnstile um, you know effect on that. That it's it turn it's, we don't go in as a group. We can't collectively say all of us here at Grace Presbyterian Church are going to go to heaven as a as a group through the turnstile. We got to go in individually, one at a time, and we got to put our card in there. And if it's recognized, we're in. If it's not, you know, we're not. So, um, very, very scary there. Yeah. <laughs> they won't get very far. <laughs> All right. So, uh, beginning to run out of time here. Um, so if God did so love the world, how can God who loves the world send anyone to perish in hell? Um, let me read John 3, 16, 18 again. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. So God has given human beings freedom to participate in their life choices and eternal destinations. The way this question is worded implies that if anyone goes to hell, it's the result of God's unilateral action. And the person being sent to hell is a passive victim. But this idea regards our personal responsibility and it disregards that three-letter word, sin. It's sin. Sin is the reason that God came. That's the only way that we can enter into heaven is if we're made righteous and we're sinful. We cannot be made righteous on our own. So each of us have our own personal responsibility that we have to go through. But again, it's, it's not works-based. Our salvation simply comes through the justification justified not sin. Y'all have probably heard that before. Justified is justified never sinned. And that's essentially what, what it really is. Um, so through, through the atoning death, our sins are removed and we will be judged for those sins at a judgment day. And the judgment uh, for those whom God knows is eternal life and the judgment for those who do not is the wrath of God, which is eternal, which is eternal death. Um, Are you going to say the word hell? You know, so infrequently anymore. Even John says, and you're going to destruction, or you're not going. And yet, I think you're the only one from the pulpit that I've ever heard hell. And growing up, of course, I grew up mm-hmm. a Baptist, but we yeah, had. But. But we had revivals, you know, mm-hmm, with the mm-hmm. Baptist church. But we don't hear the word hell yeah. anymore. Mm-hmm. But the old Puritans talk about it yeah, all, all the time. time. That's right. And Jesus talked about it. But we don't hear it from our pulpit very often. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. We I mean, if you read Jonathan Edwards' prayers, yeah. yeah, I mean, he talks oh, about hell gracious, all yeah. the time. 
and that mortif uh, mortification of sin by mm -hmm. John Owen, mm -hmm. it makes sin like it has a personality. Mm -hmm. And yet, we don't hear that. Yeah. And I don't know if we need to. I just think I need to. Excuse me. A reminder. <laughs> a reminder. Yeah. Feel the heat. All right. So, what do we say from hell? Hell. Yeah. Now say that. We, we are saved. We are saved from hell. So, so let let let, let me. I'm, I'm gonna skip over it here a little bit. Um, um. So, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, we talked about. Um, well, we didn't talk about it yet, but uh, we talked about uh, Christ alone. So Christ alone kind of set up this whole thing of a binary situation. It's Christ or it's not Christ. So um, let's go through some of the binary choices that come out through, through Scripture. Um, everything about salvation is really binary. Through Moses, God confronted the Israelites saying, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. So choose life in order that you may live. Joshua challenged Israelites as they entered into the promised land, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, where, uh, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites, whose land in you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Another binary. Elijah called for the decision on Mount Carmel. How long, talking to the Israelites, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. You can't serve two gods. Uh, God in, telling Jeremiah, You shall say to the people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Two choices. MacArthur brings up, you got two roads. you got two roads. you got two gates, great and small. Um, the broad road, the narrow road, two destinations, life and destruction. Yeah. Two crowds, the few and the many. Why well, I have a little issue with the, the term God sends people to hell. Yeah. He does. God doesn't send anybody to hell. Does He even say in Scripture that He sends people to hell? He gives you that choice. No, He. You know, you're, you're walking there. You know, He's not sending you there. Right. When 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 we go through the whole thing of predestination and election, um, you know, God chooses some, but He. The, the, the terminology is not that he chooses to bring some to heaven. It's not, and he chooses to send some to hell. The way Scripture lays it out is that predestination is yes, God chooses those who he chooses to show mercy to, and he leaves the others in their sin. So we all deserve, and that and that's the mystery. I mean, that's the whole mystery that we're not going to fully understand. But no, you're exactly right. God does not send. Anyone, the, the, the unbelievers that, that hate Christianity that's a term they like to use. Mm -hmm. Why does God send people to hell? Mm -hmm. no, it doesn't work. And, and, it, it, you're, you're exactly right, he, he, he does not. Good point. Um, so we got that binary thing to uh, two destinations, life and destruction, two crowds, the few and the many, two kinds of trees, good and corrupt, two kinds of fruit, good and bad, two kinds of builders, wise and foolish. To foundations, rock, and sand. Um, so you'll not find a plainer statement in the gospel anywhere in Scripture um, more than this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did not prophesy in Your name. And then I'll declare to them, I never knew You apart from me. That's right there. Um, let me close with a story. Um, who's read... Let me... Yeah, I can, I can do that. Okay, uh, who's read Chronicles of Narnia? Any, anyone? Okay. Um, in the episode titled The Silver Chair, a young girl named Jill Pole uh, has entered a strange wood in the land of Narnia with her friend Eustace Scrub. I love these names. Uh, due to poor judgment, she finds herself alone and separated from Eustace. She's very thirsty and is walking in search of water. She finds a stream but stops dead in her tracks, and then C.S. Lewis writes, But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she did not rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open, and she had very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay Aslan, the lion. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted? She could not be sure. It seemed like hours, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if she could only be sure of getting a mouthful of water. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you're thirsty, come and drink. It was a deeper, wilder, stronger, and sort of a heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would, I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? Says the lion, I make no promise. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill coming under another step nearer. I supposed I must go and look for another stream. Says the lion, there is no other stream. Let's close. Bob, we just... Uh, oh, uh, wait, wait a minute. I, I forgot. Uh, <laughs> Alistair Begg <laughs> summed that story up like that. That, that was the... Uh, uh, Alistair Begg sums it up this way. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she could, she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. So, Father, we just uh, thank you again for... Uh, your word, we thank you that um, it's uh, inspired, it's authentic, it's um, authoritative. Father, we just pray that um, we can take these truths about our own salvation, Father, that we can examine our hearts each and every day. We can, uh, we can look to our sin, 
we can uh, repent of our sin and we can rely upon you to help us sin less as we move further along in our life. So Father, we just pray now for the service. Uh, pray for Dr. Jacobs as he preached. Give us um, wisdom to hear your word, eyes to hear, uh, eyes to see, eyes to, um, eyes to see your truth, and uh, help us to take action appropriately. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.